millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and thanks for tuning in to Talking France. Welcome back to all our regular listeners. Thanks to those of you who've sent us tweets or emails with feedback, comments, and ideas. It's been great to hear from you. And thanks also to those who've taken the time to leave a rating for the podcast. It really does help to spread the word about Talking France. And to our new listeners, well, we hope you find the next 30 minutes or so of deep discussion about all things France informative and perhaps even entertaining. Right, let's get to it. This week, we'll look at rural France. Is it neglected by Paris? Is life there really tough? The French government has a new plan to rejuvenate La France Profonde, and we'll find out all about it. Are there too many tourists in France now? The government appears to be a little concerned about certain sites and has a new plan to encourage visitors to go off the beaten track. We'll explain all and give you a few ideas for alternatives to the hotspots such as the Eiffel Tower or Versailles. And on the subject of famous sites, we'll find out about the latest person to be inducted into the Pantheon in Paris. And what exactly is the Pantheon anyway? We'll explain all. And we'll also try to understand why people in France, including foreigners, use numbers to talk about the department where they live. We'll also reveal all about France's thriving nudist community and get to the bottom of when and where you can get naked in France. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and I'll be joined, as usual, by the local France's editor, Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield, and politics expert John Litchfield. Right, on we go with Emma and Jen. And John, I should say, uh, just for the record, we are all fully clothed for the moment anyway. Guys, I just did wanted to ask you, have you seen this viral video of uh, Emmanuel Macron downing a bottle of beer? I have, It's yes. caused an immense amount of fuss. All he done is down a bottle of beer. Can you just explain, uh, Emma, what this fuss is all about? Um, I wish I could. Honestly, this to me is the most stupid scandal that France has ever encountered. Um, so this was the weekend just gone. It was the final of the top 14, which is the French domestic rugby tournament. Macron was there presenting the trophy afterwards, as is tradition for French presidents. And then after the match, he went to the dressing room of the Toulouse team who'd won. They were pretty happy, obviously. They were celebrating. They were having a few beers. Somebody gave him a bottle of Corona and then they all started shouting cool sec cool sec cool sec what does that mean bottoms up means down it cool sec and he did and down the whole bottle in one honestly I was quite impressed yeah, yeah. same I, I mean, have to say <laughs> we don't want to encourage binge drinking or anything like that on this podcast but uh, a few people weren't impressed though is that right yes uh, several sort of alcohol health organizations have said he was encouraging binge drinking I'm not sure it really counts with binge if it's just one bottle but okay mm. um, and he was also slammed on the political spectrum by some of his opponents Sandrine Rousseau who's mm. the Green Party MP uh, she called it an example of toxic masculinity mm. I must say even my most outspoken feminist friends I don't think no. would agree with that Paul Macron, eh? No matter what he does, he just gets hammered, doesn't he? Well, Rousseau, she does kind of have form for this kind of comment. Last um, summer, she said that uh, having barbecues were also uh, an example of uh, macho yeah. behaviour of men feeling the need to have yeah. too much meat on a barbecue. So, uh, oh well, he always surprises Emmanuel Macron. You never know quite what he's going to do next. Do <laughs> it's true. Right on, we go. Uh, what we're we talking about in France? The big talking points this week. Let's start off with rural France, as I mentioned in the intro. 
Now, France's Prime Minister Elizabeth Bourne has announced a plan to revitalise many of France's rural areas. France is a predominantly rural country. 90% of its surface area is classified as rural. And about a third of the population lives in the countryside. Surveys suggest that 8 out of 10 French people love the idea of living in the countryside, the tranquility, the calm. But there are issues, Jen, are there not, which the government are trying to deal with? Yes. So there is a recent plan that the government has released to sort of revitalize France's um, countryside. And they pinpointed a few areas that rural France is known to struggle with. The first is transportation. Um, And so the government said that they want to create a 90 million euro fund to help local authorities offer more innovative and supportive mobility services so that people are less car dependent. Now, this is a really big priority considering how hard it is to get around rural France without a car. If you remember the yellow vest protests from a few years ago, they all started because of anger in rural and small town France over a new environmental tax on fuel. People felt that these measures were really out of touch with their daily lives, seeing as they relied on their vehicles. And then the next area is doctor shortages. About a third of the French population reportedly lives in a medical desert. So that's an area where GPs are short in supply. And most of these medical deserts are in rural France. There are some long-term plans to deal with this. But in the short term, the government wants to send out these medico-bus or medico-buses that are going to be staffed with specialists like gynecologists that are going to go to these medical deserts and offer more regular appointments to people. Okay, Jen, the government's also looking at the housing issue. One thing you notice in parts of rural France is the number of empty derelict homes in certain villages. The government wants to find a solution, right? So in addition to a shortage of affordable housing across the country, there is a significant number of empty houses, particularly in rural France. And a lot of times these are abandoned or derelict homes. In order to solve this issue, the government wants to give grants of up to 5,000 euro to property owners who are going to renovate a vacant home. Now, there is one stipulation that is that they have to rent it out to priority groups. So these might be young people, low-income families, or seasonal workers. Interesting. Now, on this question of the challenges of life in rural France. We did put this question to our readers who had some really interesting responses. I'll include the article in the show notes and in our podcast article this week. But Jen, what do they have to say about the challenges of life in rural France? Yeah, so um, our readers pinpointed a lot of these same themes, like a lack of uh, public transport or access to primary care doctors in the survey that we sent out. And some of them mentioned having issues with hunting as well, which was not covered in Elizabeth Bourne's plan. One of our readers, Dina, who lives in Brittany, focused on the lack of doctors and businesses in small towns. She told us that there's not a huge range of professionals to choose from, from doctors, especially dentists and notaires. She also said that there's been a demise of many businesses. She said, said, when we bought our house 12 years ago, there were two restaurants, a bar, an épicerie, and a garage in our village. Now there's only one restaurant. She also said that having to drive everywhere is the worst thing, uh, there being no public transport within a half-hour drive. Living in a small rural village, it's difficult to go out to dinner. You can't have a drink if you have to drive home, and there's no alternative to driving. And then another one of our readers, Carrie, in Vienne, talked about the lack of convenience stores. She said, it's not really a gripe, just something to get used to and, and that is not having all the groceries available locally uh, that I was used to being able to get before. Uh, I have learned to adapt, though, and would far rather have this rural life. A person who knows a thing or two about rural life is our politics expert, John Litchfield, because he lives part of the time in the department of Calvados in Normandy. I asked John whether life in rural France was as hard as it's made out to be. And what the main challenges were there for residents? One of the great problems of rural France is just so much of it, you know, huge areas between towns and cities, much more so than, than in most, certainly more than in Britain and in most other European countries. 
So something like, I think, one in three of French people live in what is defined as rural France. So yes, there are problems. There are, south of me here in the next department, south in New York, there is a real problem with medical services. But it's a very empty department. It's very difficult to sort of have doctors in places, in enough places to reach the whole population. Here, where I am, there are sort of like seven doctors within 10 miles, two medical centres. You know, we, it's not a désert médical at all. And yet this is a pretty rural area. You know, we're 40 kilometres from the nearest big town. So I think the trouble is there isn't one rural France. You know, there are places that are suffering and there are places that are doing reasonably well. Yes, of course, there's no public transport up here in the hills where I am. But So you have to drive down into the valley. But I think that's been traced for many years now and everyone does. Most people do have their source of transport. I think jobs probably for young people is the real source of anxiety and and, uh, you know, if you're a young person who's born in this commune or one of the communes roundabout, there's not really going to be ever much in the way of local work for you here. You're going to have to go about 40 or 50 kilometers to, to work in one of the not big but bigger towns roundabout or in some cases move right away to the city. So there's that sense that there's no longer a kind of continuity here, a sense of local prosperity, a sense of local pride. But then lots of things are being done. You know, we have a broadband system that's as fast as what you get in Paris or New York. We have, as I say, lots of doctors locally, good shops in the, in the valley, good bus service into Caen. Things are never quite as bad as people say they are. Uh, have rural parts of France been too often an afterthought over the years for governments based in Paris? Have they been neglected? I, I think, you know, the idea that somehow rural France is, is neglected, which is what you hear the drumbeat from people like Marine Le Pen, is to me misleading, you know, because the Gilets Jaunes always used to say that uh, their taxes were being siphoned out of countryside and put into the cities. Well, all the figures show the opposite, you know, that mm. the countryside is hugely subsidised by the cities in terms of state spending on things like roads, so incredibly good roads in, in rural France, uh, education, even medical services, you know. To me, that the real problem with rural France is more of an existential thing. You know, these are all little places that had their sense of identity at one time, farming partly, but also local mining or factories or so on, which essentially have gone and farmers are now a kind of minority in, in rural France. They don't sort of provide a kind of backbound sense of identity to the countryside anymore. And so I think what you have is a sense of lost identity, a sense of lost place, which then kind of battens onto these other issues, which is far worse, far less than in other similar countries. And I don't think whatever any government does uh, is going to easily reverse that sense of, of lost local pride, lost local identity, which is, I think, the core of the kind of malaise in local France, which means that something like one in three of rural French voters vote for Marine Le Pen, even though there are no immigrants, it doesn't seem to fit with her core message. But it does in a way, because the sense of identity, lost identity, her argument is about a sense of lost French identity. And I think it does kind of resonate with people in the countryside in a funny sort of way, in a strange sort of way. You know, rural France is supposed to be the bedrock of the country, the conscience of the country, all those things. And what is the conscience of the country voting? It's increasingly voting for Le Pen. But overall, I think often the problems are exaggerated because of this more existential sense of loss and the sense somehow that the cities are doing better, that they have a sort of purpose in life, yeah. which rural France doesn't. So this week we learned that a man named Misak Manouchian will be inducted into the Pantheon in Paris. This is the highest posthumous honour available in France. It's a decision made by the head of state and it's reserved for people who've made an exceptional contribution to France. So Emma, first of all, who was Misak Manouchian? Uh, he was a resistance fighter during World War II. Uh, he was the leader of a network of fighters who carried out sabotage attacks on Nazi targets. Uh, he was eventually caught in 1944 and he was executed. Now, he's not the first résistant to be inducted into the Pantheon. Uh, Jean Moulin, who we talked about in a previous episode, he's there. Uh, Genevieve de Gaulle, Antoise and Germain Tillon, they're all in the Pantheon. But Minouchin is both 
the first foreign resistance fighter and the first communist resistance fighter. And that's important because foreigners actually made a significant contribution to the French resistance and the communists were really the backbone of the earliest resistance activities. But there was a bit of a post-war tendency to kind of write them out of history to try and present the resistance as this entity that was entirely male, entirely French and a non-political organisation. And really none of these things are true about it. Induction into the Pantheon is for French citizens, but that can include naturalised citizens. And that's the case with Manouchien. He was originally Armenian. He arrived in France as a stateless refugee in 1925, fleeing the Armenian genocide. And his induction is being seen really as a, a symbol of the contribution of all foreigners during World War II. But also there's this thing that I find quite interesting is this idea on a wider level of France being a nation made up of values, so it doesn't matter so much where you were born, you can become French if you subscribe to French values. And that's kind of what a lot of the the quotes from politicians around this decision say. So the current French Communist Party leader, Fabien Roussel, he described Manouchien as someone who symbolises a certain idea of France, a political nation made up of citizens of all origins, united by universal values. And this is basically what Emmanuel Macron said as well when he was announcing his decision. He said that Manouchien embodies the universal values of France. It's powerful stuff. Now, I've got a question for you. I go to a pub near the Pantheon called the Bombardier, Quite a lot. I stare up at the Pantheon, incredibly impressive building. You can see it, you know, the across the Paris skyline, you can see the top of it. What actually is the Pantheon? Is it a church? Um, great question. It was originally built as a church, right. but it then became a secular monument, and that's what it is today. Um, but that's why you would probably think the building is a church if you look at it. It was first commissioned as a church, uh, the Church of St. Genevieve, the patron saint of Paris, by King Louis XV. And it's said, although this might be one of those stories that's more fun than actually true, that he commissioned the church as a desperate plea to God to cure him of his venereal diseases. Oh. Yeah, anyway, by the time the building was actually finished, he was dead, so that cure didn't work. Um, <laughs> and his grandson, Louis XVI, was on the throne. But it was finished in 1790, and by this point, Louis XVI had bigger problems to worry about. The revolution was underway, and he would shortly lose his head. So in 1791, the brand new revolutionary government decided that they would open this building as a kind of secular church, that it would become a mausoleum for the people who were judged to be France's most distinguished citizens. And that's what it is today. You have to be judged to have made some kind of exceptional contribution to France in order to be inducted into the Pantheon. And entry into it has always been within the gift of the head of state, whoever that happens to be over the years. Although in modern times, it quite often follows a sort of public campaign for people to be recognised. Okay, and you're using this word inducted. Does that mean people are getting buried there? Is it a plaque with their name on? What What is it exactly? Well, some of the Pantheon inductees are actually buried there. Right. Some are not. And some are partially buried there. Hold so, on. <laughs> yeah. Go on, carry on. Honestly, I fell down a rabbit hole researching yeah. this bit. Yeah, I'm intrigued. <laughs> so... Kind of earlier in the building's history, people might be given the honour of a Pantheon burial like straight after they died. So they would just be buried direct within the yeah, within the building. So that's the case, for example, for Marie Curie, the discoverer of radium. She's in there. And incidentally, her coffin is lined with lead because they were worried about the effects of the radiation from her mm. experiments lingering in her body. Mm, wow. Weird, weird detail. Mm. Um, but these days, the trend is more for inducting people once they've been dead for some time. Basically, like once you've had a chance to fully assess their life, their legacy, their place in history. Mm. 
So that would mean kind of disinterring people who were already buried from their original grave and moving it into the Pantheon. So that has happened in some cases, but in other cases, people aren't too keen on disturbing the remains of a loved one. So the induction into the Pantheon is more of a symbolic act. They might move some of the person's ashes there. Or, for example, when Josephine Baker, the American dancer, was inducted last year, they just moved a little bit of the earth from her burial plot to Paris. She actually remains in her grave in Monaco. I see. And look, are there certain people, war heroes perhaps, inducted into the Pantheon who have no graves at all? Yeah, there are actually quite a few people in there who have no known graves. So their bodies obviously aren't there because people don't know where they are. So the, the resistance leader, Jean Moulin, during the Second World War, he was deported to a concentration camp in Germany and died en route. So he has no remains. Uh, the pilot and author, Antoine Saint-Exupéry, um, author of The Little Prince, mm. um, he disappeared while flying in the Second World War and his body was never found. So in those cases, people just get like a, a plaque. There's nothing physically in there. Yeah. But there was also a brief phase of dividing up bodies. This um, is the bit you refer to, yeah? Th- this is very okay, weird. Go on. <laughs> I feel like maybe we should have like a content warning or something, yeah. but yes, it's very strange. So, for example, uh, the politician Leon Gambetta, his heart is in the Pantheon uh, and the rest of him is in his family burial plot. How the hell did that happen? Well, they removed his heart from his body and it's in a little urn in the Pantheon Pantheon, next to his plaque. In reverse, you've got Louis Braille, you know, the inventor of the Braille writing system for the blind. He's buried in the Pantheon, but... For some reason, they removed his hands before they buried him. And so his hands are buried in his family cemetery and his handless corpse is in the Pantheon. Pantheon. Yeah. Um, It kind of seems like these days people are less keen on hacking off body parts from their loved ones. So you do tend to get ashes or some earth from the burial plot moved to the Pantheon. It's more of a symbolic act than than a physical one these days. But ultimately the decision lies with the family members. But each inductee gets an identical stone sarcophagus. So when you visit, you won't really know who's actually buried there and who isn't and who just has random body parts scattered around the place. Absolutely fascinating. Now, finally, instead of going to a pub and staring at the Pantheon, can I actually visit it? Absolutely, yes. It's very central. It's in the 5th R&D Small. It's open seven days a week. It costs 11 50 to visit, free for children. It's not essential to book in advance, but it is quite a good idea if you're visiting during busy periods. The building itself is very beautiful. It's got a lot of history there. You can visit all of the tombs of the famous inductees and learn a bit more about them. And there's usually a temporary exhibition there as well, which is dedicated to some aspect of the lives of the, of the people resting there or a particular topic around them. And you can also climb right up to the top. It's 203 steps so it's good for the thighs but the view once you get up there is pretty spectacular yeah fascinating thanks very much emma for all that information on the pantheon in paris now summer is upon us which means millions of tourists will descend on france as they do each year France, as we've said before on this podcast, is the world's number one visited country with around 90 million annual visitors. But are there suggestions the French government now thinks there might be too many? Jen, surely not. Well, so you might think that the French government would be rejoicing over the fact that France and Paris are now almost at their pre-COVID levels for tourism. But the problem is that some places are experiencing what locals have called over-tourism or surtourisme. And this has basically meant that islands like the Poquerolles have put caps on the number of visitors that can come a day. And mostly that's to protect their natural landscape. But part of the reason this is an issue is that 80% of the tourism that occurs in France happens on just 20% of the country's territory. 
So the government announced this week that it had come up with some measures to handle over tourism, which include creating a team that are going to collect data on tourism hotspots and hopefully develop a formal definition and category for when, quote unquote, over tourism is officially happening. And then they're going to put that information into a digital platform that actors in the tourism industry will be able to access. And the government also said they're going to enlist some help from influencers. So as of now, it seems that their role is just going to be to help encourage people to go to less crowded places. So in a sense, to kind of disperse the tourism across the country. But basically, the gist is just that the French government is paying more attention to this concern of over tourism mm. in certain areas. Okay, we know that Paris is one of the most visited cities in the world. So of course, monuments in and around the city, like the Eiffel Tower, are some of the most popular in France. What about places outside of Paris, Jen? Where do these tourists flock to that's not the capital? Well, so besides the capital and Disneyland, because we can't forget that, and all those landmarks in and around Paris, like you mentioned, the five most visited spots in France are actually mostly amusement parks, which it makes sense if you consider the fact that 70% of tourists in France are indeed domestic tourists. Mm. Uh, so you could say that if you want to do as the French do, you could plan your vacation to go to the Puy de Fou, uh, the medieval amusement park in the Vendée, or Parc Asterix, the amusement park that's devoted to our beloved Gaulish comic book characters. But no offense to the amusement parks, but when it comes to the cultural sites that get the most tourists or visitors outside of the Paris region, the first one that comes up is the Mont Saint-Michel, which we've talked about on this podcast before. It's a tidal island in Normandy with a it just celebrated its uh, 1,000th year anniversary of its abbey, and they get about 3 million visitors a year. Then next up are the Calanques in um, Marseille along the Mediterranean, and they've become more and more popular, so much so that now they are also introducing visitor caps during peak season um, for some of the more popular Calanques like Sugiton. Then afterwards, you have Carcassonne. Uh, that's the medieval city in Occitanie. It's listed on the UNESCO World Heritage List, and it's super cool. Uh, they get about 2.1 million visitors a year. Afterwards, there is the Citadel of Bonifacio. I hope I'm pronouncing that. Bonifacio, Bonifacio in Corsica. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's known for its white limestone cliffs. And there's a town sitting right on top of them. It's really beautiful, right over the water. It gets around 2 million visitors a year. And then finally, the French chateaux are very popular among tourists, which probably doesn't come as a surprise. The one that gets the most visitors was the Chateau des Ducs de Bretagne in Nantes. They get 1.5 million visitors a year. Okay, so let's pick some places that are off the beaten track in France that we can recommend to listeners. Uh, Jen, do you want to start us off? Yes, so I'll start off with Van. I've been to Van several times. I always have a great time. Van, where's Van? Come on. It's in Brittany. It's right. uh, in the west of France, in the Gulf of the Morbihan. It's a pretty quick and easy ride from Paris. It's a direct TGV train. It's really not that touristy. Um, the best parts about it, it's it's on a port, so you've got some beautiful boats all around. It's also next to plenty of wonderful beaches. If you're into bird watching, then that's something really cool that you can do in the Morbihan because there's plenty of protected marshland. You can get some great photos. Um, there's also plenty of fresh seafood, unsurprisingly, and the city itself is quite historic. There are old medieval ramparts you can walk around, but my favorite part about it is the fact that it's a really easy way to get to the small and quaint picturesque islands in the Gulf like Gua or Ile d'Arts. Okay, before we hear from me and Emma, let's hear from John on his recommendation for an off-the-beaten-track place in France. 
Well, it's far away from where I live in, in Calvados, which is also a beautiful place, but it's, you know, quite well known and, and visited. Some years ago now, I came across the department of the Creuse in, in southwestern France, part of the Limousin area, which is extraordinarily beautiful. Nothing spectacular, uh, not sort of big mountains or, or lakes or anything like that, but just beautiful rolling hilly countryside for miles and miles and miles and miles. Not hugely visited even now, although it has changed a little bit in the last 20 or so years. One of the few departments that doesn't have, I don't think, a motorway. There may be two kilometres of motorway that pass through the corner of it. It has no big towns. It's where the Aubusson carpets come from. That's the only sort of industry of, of kind of world renown. But it is an extraordinarily beautiful place. It's a kind of like English countryside, but much further south. You know, it's sort of green, wooded, hilly, lots of lovely little villages, good food, definitely a place Perfect. to go to. Thanks, John. Okay, Emma, your turn. Crack on. Uh, yeah, okay. So my uh, my recommendation is a little village called Côte Sociale. It's fairly well known in France, but I think it's less well known outside France. It's this very cute little, um, it's Bastide, which is a hill, 45 hilltop town down in the south- southwest of France near to Albi. It's a cute little uh, medieval town with museums. It's also got a museum of sponge sugar, which is quite fun. But the reason that it's famous is this weird meteorological phenomenon that occurs in the autumn. In the early mornings of the autumn, the fog kind of hangs on the valley floor. And then just you can see this little village popping out over the top. So it looks like it's floating on the clouds. And that's where its name comes from, Cord Cord in the sky. But you kind of have to go in the autumn for that. Which brings me actually to my number one tip for visiting France. Just come in the winter. Mm. Like when people say about, you know, what should I know about visiting Paris? I always say, don't come in the summer. Paris in the summer, like it's really busy. It's really hot. You know, if you're coming to Paris, you're probably going to want to sightsee. But a lot of the sightseeing things in the really hot temperatures are just not pleasant. So come in the winter. it's much quieter. It's nicer. If it does rain, you can just spend the afternoon in a cafe drinking wine. You'll just have a really nice time. So come in the winter. <laughs> I'm not sure my recommendation would work for that, though, because I was going to say the Morvan. It's like a, a regional park kind of in Burgundy to the southeast of Paris, a couple of hours southeast. Uh, it's beautiful. It's hilly. It's great for hiking. It's great for cycling. I cycled from Vézelay, the UNESCO site, uh, to the north of the, the regional park to Autun. A, town, a Roman town to the southeast. It's absolutely beautiful, but in winter it gets very wet. However, the food is is classic. You know, you can eat snails and, and boeuf bourguignon, all that kind of stuff, but it does get wet, so you kind of need to take appropriate clothing. Have you been to Morvan, guys? No. No, uh, I've been to Burgundy to drink the wine, yeah. but that yeah. was a bit less strenuous yeah. than your holidays. And yeah. I think this is the difference in our holidays. You cycle 200 yes, kilometres exactly. and I just drink some wine. I think it's a great place to kind of, if you can't make the Alps and you're looking for hills and hiking and cycling, the Morvan is a good uh, compromise. Yeah, it's really next on my list. Great. Perfect. Thanks, guys. Right, I've got some interesting stats here for you now. Every year, an estimated 2.6 million French people plus 2 million foreigners are drawn to France to basically get naked. That's because France is regarded as the world's number one naturist destination. According to the country's tourist info site, which actively promotes naturist holidays, there are 150 naturist beaches in France, whether by the sea, on lakes or rivers. There are 188 naturist clubs, 165 naturist campsites, 10 dedicated naturist hotels, and the tourism sector, naturism tourism sector, helps keep 3,000 people directly or indirectly in work. Emma, tell us more about this thriving hobby. 
Uh, yes, so in France does have this really thriving naturist community and for obvious practical reasons, nudism is more common in the summer. First thing is important to stress is that this isn't any kind of sexual thing. It's about being at one with nature. It's about feeling free. It's about connecting with your body. But yes, when you talk to naturists, they obviously, they love it. They say it's uh, it's great and very freeing. But the other thing they always stress is that it's all about consideration for other people. So a couple of years ago, we spoke to Jacques Frima, who is the head of the Association for the Promotion of Naturism in Liberty in France. And he said that the first rule for any naturist is to respect other people. And it's really important not to be confrontational about your choice to be nude. So, for example, if your neighbours don't like you sunbathing in the garden, if, you, if you're naked hiking and you meet people who are upset, then cover up, is his advice. And I think that's because while naturism is very common in, uh, in France, as we've just said, it is quite carefully coded and it's restricted as to where you can do it. So, for example, in Germany, which is perhaps the world leader of naturism, what they call FKK, you might find naked people like in parks or at the pool in the summer. That's really not the case in France. And likewise, if you're in a sauna or a spa, you will be expected to keep your swimwear on, um, unlike in the Nordic countries where it's actually frowned upon to be clothed while you're in the sauna. Right, there are rules, right, about where you can get naked. You can't just bear all willy-nilly, for example. Yeah, exactly. Great, uh, great use of the phrase, Ben. Well done. So... France has one entirely nudist village. That's the famous Cap d'Age down in the Riviera. That's an entirely nudist summer camp where people are naked 24-7 in the shops, at the bar, and of course, on the beach. There are lots of other uh, nudist holiday resorts, as you said, they're maybe less well-known, uh, or resorts that just offer a nudist section or a particular nudist season. Elsewhere, though, out of these, if you want to be naked outdoors, you're really looking at three options. Be in a private space, your own garden, obviously, um, in designated nudist sections uh, of the beach or a park, or at organised nudist events such as naked art gallery tours. Now on the beaches, quite a few beaches do have a nudist section. They'll have signs up. And if you're on this part of the beach, it's considered polite to be naked. If you're not comfortable with that, then you should just move to the non-nudist section of the beach. Likewise, uh, some city green spaces have a designated nudist area in the summer. So in Paris, you have the Bois de Vincennes. There's a section of that park, which is for, uh, for nudists. And finally, there's organised nudist activities. So like nudist clubs, they run all sorts of social events for people who want to get naked. So that's like barbecues and aperos, but they also do trips to art galleries or trips to the theatre. Kind of the best thing to do really is just, just search online for your local nudist club, find a list of their activities and go along. Apparently they're, they're very friendly and very welcoming. But away from these designated areas, it's not actually specifically illegal to be naked, but you can be arrested for a public order offence if your nakedness is upsetting other members of the public. So like if you were somewhere very inappropriate, like a church, for example, or if you were naked and were refusing to cover up and being confrontational about it, there's a possibility that that would be a public order offence. Now, look, getting your clothes off hasn't always proved a success. A naked restaurant in Paris, Au Naturel, closed after 15 months because basically they couldn't get enough bums on seats. Emma, this kind of covers those who want to go bottomless. What about topless sunbathing and all that? Is that still a thing in France? Uh, yes, yeah, it's still a thing. If you're female, going topless is okay on pretty much any beach. Uh, it's about less common than it used to be, especially among younger women for various reasons, but it's still fairly normal to see women sunbathing topless on the beach and it's not an issue. Away from the beach, uh, it's usually not allowed in parks uh, and what they call the monokini, which is like bikini bottoms only, no top, is banned in most municipal swimming pools. If you're male, it's okay to bare your chest on the beach, uh, at the pool and usually in public parks, but it's really not common to see men walking around with their shirts off in town. Even if you're at the seaside, men would usually be expected 
expected to put a top on if you want to go to a restaurant or a bar, for example. In most places, it isn't specifically legal, but there are some local authorities who've enacted rules asking men to cover up away from the beach. And the general feeling seems to be that too many topless men just lowers the tone of the place. I think that's fair enough. When I was in Cassis, you know, the resort on the Mediterranean coast near Marseille, there was signs up everywhere telling men to cover up you know, when they basically head into town. It's fair enough, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. It's a bit, uh, it's a bit scruffy. Yeah. You don't want to be sitting having your apero looking at big hairy chest, do you? Well, you might be. That's your, your own personal choice, Ben. Your holiday is entirely up to you. Yeah, not really for me. Okay, guys. Uh, okay, Emma, thanks for shedding light on the naturist community in France. Now, when you ask someone in France, or indeed a foreign resident in France, where they live, which department they live in, they might either answer with the name of the department, or often they'll just give you a random number, or what to me feels like a random number, 93, 66, 37. Jen, what am I talking about here? Well, that person is just telling you which department they're coming from. The number of the department. Yeah, exactly. Uh, this habit has been going on in France since the French Revolution, uh, which seems to be a common theme for a lot of French habits. Um, you'll recognize these numbers as the first two digits of your postal code or um, from your French license plate. And basically, this goes back to 1789, um, when there was a decree to split up France into 83 départements, or counties. Uh, the goal at the time was to better unify the country. Uh, the département would be centered around one primary town, and the size of the département would have been determined by how long it would take for a person to get from that town to the four corners of the territory. So at the time, that was measured by how long, uh, whether or not you could do that within one day, uh, day's ride on horseback. But after carving France up into 83 départements, uh, which became official in 1790, those départements still weren't assigned any specific number. And some of them actually didn't keep the name of their old territory. They actually um, they wanted to do away with stuff that had been too connected to the Ancien Régime. So instead, uh, a lot of them were named after landmarks like rivers or mountains. The numbers themselves actually came in when it was time to send the mail. Um, so since the early 17th century, postmarks have been used to show where the letter was from. And and two years after France was divided into the département, letters began um, being sent with stamps that had a number attached to them so that the receiver would know where it was coming from. And so what they did was they listed the département alphabetically, and so each was assigned a number. Okay, so when you talk to people who, you know, seem to know all these numbers, do they just memorize all the numbers of the French departments so they know them all? I only know Paris 75. That's pretty much the only one I know. Yeah, no, me too. I don't, I haven't gotten them memorized. I agree. Like you can end up feeling a bit lost if you're in a group of French people and they just randomly start referencing numbers like le trente troisième. <laughs> and I, I actually asked a few French people that I know about this and they said that it doesn't necessarily imply that every single French person has memorized all of the 96 mainland departements. Uh, usually people are just most familiar with the département that they're from or the ones around it. But you're right, it's still like this huge cultural phenomenon here. When I asked some French people about it, they just told me that it's a form of colloquial speech and it can be a way of showing pride about where you're from. And then also referring to département by their number is pretty common in French music, so uh, especially in rap. Like a lot of um, French rap comes from Saint-Saint-Denis, Marseille, and Lyon. And so in rap songs, you might hear a lot of references to 93, Saint-Saint-Denis, 13, or 13, Marseille, or 69, 69, Lyon. Mm, they refer to 93 as more like 9-3, is that right, Emma? You're from up there, aren't you? 
I am, yes. I live in the, in the 93, which is the coolest department in the whole of France, obviously. And yes, as you said, it's the only one. Normally you say the, the number whole, so it would be 93. So we're for for that. But in, uh, in Saint-Saint-Denis, we've sometimes referred to it as just Le Neuf Trois, yeah. um, because we're cool. I'm from the 75. That's cool, isn't it? No, you're you're from seventy five. <laughs> don't don't usurp our our coolness. Fair enough, Jen. Look, thanks for clearing that up to me. I just I just think people should use the names of the departments. I agree. Make it so much simpler. But um, brilliant. Thanks, Jen. Now we normally end this podcast with some very vital life hacks for people. Now we've had a question in or a request from listener Brian Sullivan. Hi, Brian. Thanks for sending this in. He asked us if we could recommend some books in English to learn more about France and French current affairs. Now, we've asked this similar question to our readers in the past. And once again, I'll share the article in the podcast article and in the show notes. But they had some great suggestions for us. For example, Simon Sharma's book, Citizens, A Chronicle of the French Revolution, which they said was a must read, or The Discovery of France by Graham Robb. Jonathan Fenby's History of Modern France from the Revolution to the War with Terror was another recommendation from readers. But Emma and Jen, you've picked out a couple of books for us. Emma, you start us off. Yeah, this is a great idea. When I first moved to France, this is exactly what I did. Found some books to try and understand more about this country. Uh, the one you mentioned, actually, Jonathan Fenby's A History of Modern France, uh, I think is the is the classic. It's just a straightforward history book that just tells you, you know, what happened and when and helps you slot into place France's slightly complicated uh, history. The other one I would really recommend is by Emile Chabal, who is a former guest on this podcast, incidentally. He's written a great book, which is simply called France. Um, it's a history as well, but it's arranged by themes so like the left and right, colonialism from revolution to protest. It's quite short, it's only about 180 pages, but it kind of looks at how certain themes have sort of been constant throughout French history. So like if you're looking at massive street protests, it kind of traces that protest back to the revolution or that protest habit back to the revolution. Fantastic. Jen, what about you? So I've got 60 Million Frenchmen Can't Be Wrong, Why We Love France But Not the French by Jean Nadeau. And I read this book kind of like Emma was just saying when I first moved to France. And even though it was written in 2003, I found that a lot of the themes were still really pertinent. Um, They basically, the authors go through different themes about France, different cultural aspects about France. And, you know, coming from this outsider perspective, it really allows you to understand why French people might do things in a different way. Honestly, it's a great read. It's still totally worth it. There you go. A couple of great recommendations for books to read to improve your knowledge about France. And that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks to you all for listening. Thanks to all our members of the local who are listening as well. And we'll be back with more Talking Points from France next week.